devastation of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal. We're joined by seven-time Emmy nominee, television and film actor. He's he's acted in seven decades. I figured this out. Ed Bagley Jr. Sure, good to have very you. Very nice. Wow, that was very well done, Neil. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, my friend, and you too, Trista. Good to be with you both. Thank you. That's very exciting. So we're going to talk about your films, but also want to uh, talk about uh, your products that you have uh, out there. Yeah, I've Bagley got a line of responsible products. That's right. Non-toxic products. Since 1970, in the first Earth Day, tried to do what I can environmentally and often on a very strict budget because I was a broken, struggling actor. So I used vinegar and water and then baking soda, things like that to clean. But you want something that cleans a little better than that, but it's got to still be non-toxic. And we were able to do that. You have the best of both. Very good uh, cleaning properties. And it's totally non-toxic. And that's on Amazon and uh, Walmart. And uh, it's coming in Chewy.com. I believe you can also get the links off your website. Yes, it, it's good stuff. Chewy has it. That's right. Amazon. Anywhere you go, you just type in Begley Cleaning and it'll pop right up. If you put Begley Cleaning or Begley Cleaning Products, that's an extra word you probably don't need to add, but Begley Cleaning will do it. Yeah, very good. And we'll talk a little bit more of that in a minute. Uh, Terrible Troy has joined us. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Hey, no, Troy, I, nothing terrible about you. You look very nice. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. I agree. Uh, and a few weeks ago, I had Paul Schrader on the show um, about the 40th anniversary of uh, Cat People. And so uh, I was wondering how you got involved in Cat People. Two words you just said, Paul Schrader. He's been so generous to me. He put me in blue collar many years ago. That was the first film I did with him, with Yafid Koto, Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor. And then I got to be in Cat People. I got to be in hardcore in a very small part. Uh, I was in uh, autofocus. Yeah, he's hired me a lot. I owe him a great deal. He's a wonderful writer, a wonderful director, and a dear friend, Paul Schrader. Give him my love when you talk to him. Yeah, it was a great guest. Um, he was very open about uh, some some dark uh, stuff in his past, and because he said actually said cat people led to him leaving Hollywood. I didn't know that, but I can I understand that that might. Have happened, yeah. When I think of the timeline, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so, did you notice any of that? Uh, you know, I don't know if you were. I just he he talked about a lot of drug use uh, during that movie. I don't know if that if you were involved in that scene at all. But did you notice anything like that for that movie? By the time Cat People came around, we did that in '81 and came out in '82. I was clean and sober at that point. But before that, Blue Collar was a very interesting thing. You can kind of notice if you watch blue collar closely, certainly as regards my character. I think it was Billy Joe or something like that. But I was often playing a guy who was stumbling out to his car and stumbling around the saloon. They had me play a drunk in a lot of the scenes. Can you guess why that was, Neil? (laughs) Well, I guess it was, uh, it matched your personality. uh... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Why why was Thomas Mitchell playing a drunk in so many scenes and movies that Thomas Mitchell did? I think there might be a reason. So Mm -hmm. I was wild. It wasn't just drinking. I did lots of everything back then. And, uh, you know, I had a wild time and most of it was fun. Then it became not fun by around, well, sometime after a blue collar, it started to get a little difficult and dangerous. You know, I was not just drinking and using, I was operating a vehicle. And so, uh, thank God I didn't kill anybody. And I'm very grateful. I'm still there. And lots of other people are because I quit at the right time. By the end of the seventies, I was done. 
Something Paul talked about was initially was hard for him to to write again once he got clean because he didn't know if he could actually be creative uh, without any without any you know drugs or alcohol. Did you have that problem? Or did Absolutely, even- absolutely, I had that, and I didn't know Paul and I shared that. I knew he was not using and he was clean. I knew that part for years now, but I didn't know he go through, he went through that. Of course, he did. When I think about it for only a moment. I went through it. And for me, it was like kind of a test. What is the biblical thing where Isaac has to sacrifice his son and God says, no, I need you to do this to prove that you love me. And at the last minute, he goes, just kidding. You know, so there's something like that for me. I was no longer funny. Definitely, for sure. I couldn't be funny after I got clean and sober for a while. And suddenly I found myself on a set. I think it was at Universal on some maybe Battlestar Galactica. And there was like a horseshoe shape of folding chairs kind of all facing in one direction and everybody was laughing and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized it was me. I was somehow one day without seeing it quite happen. I was funny again, but I had to be willing to do that. I went, I'll do carpentry. I'll become an assistant cameraman. I had skills in both. I was willing to do that and happily, but I couldn't continue on the other path. It was going to kill me and even worse, probably kill others. So I quit. And then uh, a lot of that, all of that returned and, and more, I think really when you see, some of the work I was able to do later, I got to get better at my craft finally. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Paul Schrader, you like work with him, you, you know, good friends. And I, I'm a big fan of the Christopher Guest movies and you've been in a lot of them since uh, um, Spinal Tap. Uh, so when you find people that you enjoy working with, uh, do you know right away and do you, then you, do you want to continue to work with them? Yeah, I got very lucky with Chris Guest. I, met his sister, Alyssa Guest. She went with a wonderful guy, a producer, Harry Giddis, who put me in Going South and wonderful producer, a friend of Jack Nicholson's named Harry Giddis. So I knew him and Harry was going with Alyssa for a while and I met her and I was not bashful about throwing her name around when I finally was in the same room with Chris at a National Lampoon magazine, National Lampoon magazine, like recording studio. They were doing something after the album came out, Radio Dinner, that wonderful, funny album that Chris did. It was a, you know, like radio album, if you will, a, a comedy album, what am I saying, uh, called Radio Dinner. And Chris was one of the funniest things in it. I just worshipped him. So I got to meet him. I even worked a bit as his assistant cameraman with a cameraman by the name of uh, Smokler, Peter Smokler. And Peter wound up shooting This Is Final Tap and Larry Sanders show. So it's really, there's only 200 people in Los Angeles. The rest are extras they bring in for crowd scenes. It's, it's you know, it's all Rob Reiner was a friend and Harry Shearer and Michael McKean and David Lander from the credibility gap and Cindy Williams. I did room 222 and it's all just one big family. Yeah. I don't want to ruin my uh, horror cred, but I, I brought down my mighty wind uh, soundtrack here. Cause oh, I'm a fan of a mighty wind. Thank you so much for putting that out. That was a fine film. You know, it's not that I'd, I certainly love, love, love being in Chris's movies, but also I love just watching them. I had absolutely nothing to do with Guffman, as you know, uh-huh. but I love it just the same as were I in the film. You know, it just, he makes great movies and I got to be, to get that phone call, I'll be honest with you, Neil, it was just wonderful. You know, hey, Ed, can we have lunch? And I, my heart be still, is this going to be about, you know, helping him with camera work again? Or does he want me to play a part? in one of his movies this is after Guffman. He said, mm-hmm. I'm doing something called best in show about dog shows and what have you. And so there's a manager at the hotel. And I wonder if you might be interested in playing the part. And I was doing backflips, of course, silently as he 
told me that. And uh, I got to be in the movie, then the next one, the next one, the next one. And I've been in every one since uh, Best in Show. So I'm very grateful to him. Yeah. How, how do those movies work? Uh, are they, are they, is there like a complete script or do you guys get your character and kind of create it yourself or? No, Chris and Eugene Levy did all the work in the first few. They wrote the treatment, the 25 page treatment for Guffman. And that's what it was. You know, the such and such happened. They decide to mount a play and they did this and Corky goes over there and that's it. Very little dialogue, some dialogue occasionally. And then he says this, you know, punchline or something that's important to the story, but very light on dialogue heavy on stage direction. And that's the work they spent about a year or something on it. I think on each one, same thing with best in show a year, him and Eugene, and then, and mighty win the same. And then uh, Eugene was busy with Schitt's Creek or something. I don't know, doing other things. And then Jim Pittock fell happily into that slot with Chris. And they did, you know, for your consideration. And they did, um, you know, mascots and, family tree and all those things together, the wonderful Jim Pittock. So they do all the hard work. Then I get to go on to a set and have a party with Jane Lynch and Michael Higgins and Fred Willard, no longer Fred, of course, God bless that wonderful man. I've known him most of my life since the Ace Trucking Company, great improv actor, great actor. Uh, but all those wonderful people, Chris being tops of the whole bunch, Catherine O'Hara, for God's sake, yeah. Eugene Levy. I mean, I just can't believe the people I get to work with. Mike Hitchcock, all of them in those shows, just extraordinary talent. But again, they do all the heavy lifting, doing the treatment. We come and have a party and play around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I would like to see uh, some more of them in the future. Yeah, those Me are too. the best. Thank you so much, pal. You're very welcome. Uh, Tristan, you have a question? Do you have any advice for aspiring actors? Yes. Do lots of theater. If you're in a place where there's a good regional theater, get involved with them, community theater, anything. If you're quite young, high school, junior college theater, college theater, do lots of plays. Actors act. Flute players play the flute. Guitar players, players learn the chords and the riffs. I mean, you just do that. That's the most important thing. And then find that thing, that inner thing, that kind of secret, if you will, or that inner pain that you're trying to keep a lid in. It could be, you can call it conflict, you can call it pain, you can call it whatever you want, but how a character deals with pain or conflict is what's the most interesting thing to watch. Think about it, Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice. You're watching that movie going, what's going on with this woman? What happened? What in God's name happened to this woman from Poland? And then you find out what Sophie's Choice was, and it's heartbreaking, of course. And that's the way it is in any work. You you see somebody like Joaquin Phoenix in The Master with Philip Seymour Hoffman and both of them. What is going on with these two? What's underneath those things? What's going on with Elizabeth Moss every week in Handmaid's Tale? You see these close-ups and, you know, just amazing the kind of work that these actors do. Look at people like that. Look at Meryl. Look at, uh, you know, Joaquin Phoenix and see the work they're doing and try to find out how they're doing that. Read one of their books and but to find that inner pain and how you deal with it is the secret. And it's not always all coming out. Sometimes it's, it's best to watch trying to keep the lid on the pot. You know, the pot wants to boil. You're just trying to keep it down. And that's very compelling, of course. Who were some of the people that, that you watched uh, when you started to pursue acting? Neil, I had it 100% all wrong for the first at least uh 16, 17 years of my life, I had it very wrong and still quite wrong for a while. 
By that, I mean, my dad was an actor. He made it look easy. I, I had this wake me when I'm famous attitude that I wouldn't recommend to anybody. I went out in interviews. I wonder how I got those. I was Ed Begley's son. I got interviewed somehow, got none of them, of course, because I wasn't trained. Imagine the son of a plumber going, I think I've watched that enough. You know, my dad from, you know, outside on the street, watch him through binoculars, how he does that. I, let's get some copper pipe. I think I can fit those together pretty easy. Where do you hold the torch up where? Huh? You know, I had no clue what I was doing and I got no work. I finally took a few meager classes and I began to work. But again, the, the phone didn't ring off the hook. So I started working as a cameraman, you know, an assistant cameraman for a while and did that. Did woodworking and other things. And finally took some more classes with Peggy Fury and other good people like Peggy Fury, the Strasbourg Institute. And I started to get more work as an actor. But it was not till 93 that this fellow Roy London said the, the following to me, and I'll, Roy has passed away, so I'm not taking anything away from his scene classes that he would give for people and personal one-on-one uh, -on -one training he gave to me and many others. But one day, Roy, I was working with him and Roy London said, you know what I think, if you want to sum it up, Ed, what the most interesting thing to watch is how a character deals with pain. Okay, let's get back to your scene. And we went back to the scene. And I thought, I nodded. I went, oh, great, Roy. I thought, what a bunch of bullshit. How I, that's all that's sure that's what I want to see. I'm in pain. Oh, I'm so, Garcia Lorca's blood wedding. Everybody's in pain and life is painful and it's terrible. And, the, and I was driving home and stopped to lie. I went, that wasn't what he said at all. He didn't say anything about a character writhing in pain or expressing pain. He said how a character deals with pain, which is what we were talking about a few minutes ago, how you keep that lid on the pot. It's trying to boil and you're trying to keep it down. And Sophie's trying to keep it together till you learn what happened. And, you know, that's that's what's the most interesting to watch. And it's comedy or drama. You look at Laurel and Hardy, even that far back, they're carrying a piano down a flight of stairs. Think about that for a minute. Two guys carrying a piano down and they fall carrying the piano. And then large pieces of the piano fall on them. And they're laughing. You're laughing. <laughs> Everybody watches laughing. And any of you pick any of those silent film stars, Buster Keaton, any of them, Harold Lloyd hanging from the hands of a clock. Tremendous jeopardy and how the character deals with it. And of course, with the great work done by Daniel Day-Lewis and Meryl Streep and Joaquin Phoenix and Elizabeth Moss, you see what they're doing. There's something in that close up on Elizabeth Moss and Handmaid's Tale. What is she? Does she have people, an assistant, you know, her personal assistant with pliers, with needle loads on her calf, hidden out of camera, pinching her calf till she, till it bleeds? Is that how she gets, how does she get that look on her face? What does she, I want to learn one day before I die what Elizabeth Moss does to do what she does every week in Handmaid's Tale and always different. It's rare. You know, you show me, okay, that's look 23A for her. It's, it's a long set of numbers, much longer than 23. She always keeps it alive and interesting because it's how she's dealing with pain. It's universal. Roy London was a genius to sum it up in so few words. There's the Strasbourg Institute right there for, that's a six month course I just gave you. Peggy Fury, a lot of it too. There's six months I just saved you. I like all what you just said there, because you said when you first started out, you thought you knew it all. And, uh, you know, uh, a veteran actor and you're still learning and you're still passionate about uh, acting and other people's acting. And I forget it sometimes, though. I forget, you know, wait a minute. Oh, God, I just shot that whole thing. I'm thinking about this, thinking about my lines. I'm old. I'm having trouble with my lines. So I was thinking about the lines. I didn't remember to have that thing. The guy dealing with pain and that scene wasn't quite as good. The others I did remember. It, so that's a better scene. But I forget myself sometimes. I forget to put that element in. I'm making a soup. 
you know, without the bay leaf, and I wonder why it doesn't taste so good. You know, you got to have that. You got to have that in it if you want it to work. And and the really good people do, and they have they never forget to do it. <laughs> I, I forget sometimes to put it in. Uh, you mentioned a lot of great uh, comedic actors. Uh, do you approach comedy and drama differently, or how do you look no, at them? Absolutely not. If you're going to do for me the most effective comedy, and there's a few exceptions, certainly types some types of comedy might be the case. But you play it like you're playing Strindberg. Look at, I'll cite one example, one guy only, just look at, I'll cite a few. Look at Dabney Coleman. Is he playing it for laughs? Look at Nine to Five, look at On Golden Pond, look at anything he's ever done. Slap Maxwell, Buffalo Bill. He's playing it like it's Strindberg. He's not playing around. He's not trying to be funny. You know, he's trying to be, you know, Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin, I think, is a very, very funny man. Look at what Charles is doing. He ain't playing it for laughs. But it's the same thing. You look at what he's doing in Rosemary's Baby. That's not supposed to be funny, and it isn't. When he realized, he realized he knows Dr. Saperstein and everything's going to change for Rosemary at that moment. There's nothing comic about that. But it's the same thing that's going to, that scene's going to work in a comedy he does six months or a year later. That same approach. I'm not kidding around. You know, this is serious. I'm really hearing them. And then you get to deal with whatever's happening, the, you know, Something suddenly happening to that. Get get away. What the fuck are you doing? Sorry, I, you probably can't say that. No, it's fine. Head. It's fine, actually. But, yeah. but uh, you know, what's going on? And uh, the, those kind of people are always in the moment, not a little ahead of it, not a little behind of it. They're right down the center in that moment. Right now, what's happening up on the roof there, anything They're They're in it. They're not playing around. And that makes the best comedy. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you're actually in one of my favorite comedies is the Amazon Women on the Moon. And uh, I love your your uh, see, your your bit as um, the son of the Invisible Man. Thank you so much. That was a fun movie and always gets a laugh around my house or anywhere. If I take my clothes off, it's always good for a laugh. Ask my wife. <laughs> the subject of great hilarity is me <laughs> disrobing. Trust me. <laughs> we can't do that on YouTube, though. I understand. The, the, the swear will the swear will get through. But and yeah. believe me, this, at my age, nobody certainly the wife is interested. <laughs> How fun was that to me? Great fun. Carl Gottlieb is a dear friend, and uh, you know that was a, a change for me because Carl was great in telling me, directing me very carefully and wonderfully what to do. Because then I was pretty good about keeping things reserved and keeping it, you know, like Charles Grodin kind of that kind of serious work. But this is a different beast slight, slightly, that Amazon Women in the Moon. It needs to be big and presentational. Let me see a shirt, make a phone call, you know, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. You can't, you can't subtle certain parts of that. Some of it can be subtle, of course. Yeah, especially the buildup the, is very subtle. But then once, Right, that's true. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's the trick to all of this. You lay down the carpet of reality, as Dabney and everybody does in nine to five, carpet of reality, and then you spike out from that briefly, intermittently, with him hanging from a chair in a harness, hanging from the ceiling. You know, Dabney's captured in this, you know, bunch of stuff hanging oh, yeah. from the ceiling. So lay your carpet of reality down, down as they do in the in-laws. And then suddenly it's Serpentine, Shelley, Serpentine, you know. And then it's, you know, uh, Richard Libertini with uh, Senior Wentz's kind of hand mouth, you know, the little hand puppet thing that Richard Libertini does. But before that, it's Strindberg. Alan Arkin and Peter Falk are playing it like they're playing Strindberg, Chekhov, you name it. But that's what they're doing. And that's why it's funny. Uh, Tristan, you have another question? Do you have a favorite horror film? 
my favorite horror film. Yes, Rosemary's Baby was terrifying for me because I was a, a Catholic. I was an altar boy. And so the idea of witches not in Salem or something like that, but witches in Manhattan was terrifying to me. I was still scared of the devil at age 18 and whenever that came out. Poltergeist, not Poltergeist was scary, but um, what was the other one? Exorcist. I yeah. did not see Exorcist quite deliberately when it came out in whatever, 73 or something like it. I would not see it just because I knew I was, it just freaked me out that all that devil crap. And then finally, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, we had done uh, Transylvania 6, 5,000. They went, oh no, you should come by. We're going to yeah. uh, run Exorcist. We got a tape of it and you should see it. You've never seen it. You should see it. No, no, it's just funny. It's, it's kind of stupid and funny. I went, okay, here it is. It's, 85 or six or whatever it was. I'll watch it. I could watch the exorcist. Now I slept with my light on for a week. I'm a 36 year old man. I slept with a light on after seeing the exorcist 36 years of age. It's just, so that exorcist exorcist was terrifying, but now that stuff I've, I hope I've grown as a human, human being somewhere around late thirties, early forties. I really, really to my core, figured out that there's not really a devil anywhere on this planet. The movie still anywhere. holds up, though, I think. It's still, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good yeah. stuff. It's, you know, when you get into the power of myth and, you know, all that stuff, it's very deep stuff. That's uh, something that's been in every culture, the devil, the Satan, this, and, you know, rising from the dead and virgin birth and all these incredible myths are around in most religions. You know, there really are in much mythology. You see these things repeat about the devil and the angels. And but, you know, none of, of course, is real. It's just crazy thinking back when we thought, you know, the earth, uh, that, that the sun revolved around the earth. You know, we had a Ptolemaic view of the universe. So that's where we were at for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read the book for the first time last year. Uh, I think it might be my favorite uh, horror novel. It's great. The, the, the Exorcist. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty scary. Yeah. Shining yeah. was scary to me. The the book was, oh, yeah. The Shining was very scary. The movie was pretty scary too. Jack was wonderful and Shelley was wonderful. Everybody was wonderful. And I liked the movie, but the book was more terrifying than the movie. Oh, yeah. I read the book long before, of course, as everybody did. And it was like, oh, Red Rum. When they got to Red yeah. Rum, again, light was on for several nights. Yeah, I actually just started uh, today reading uh, the second, uh, the sequel, uh, Dr. Sleep. Great. Um, you mentioned Transylvania 65,000. Uh, there's a lot of people sending questions. I'm just going to ask a couple. Uh, but one of them was uh, from Ken Meehan. He wants to know, uh, you and Jeff Goldblum made such an underrated comedy duo in Transylvania 65,000. Were there any talks to do a sequel or any other project together? No, uh, we've done other things together since. I did his, he had a TV show called something War, War Stories. And I did one episode of that. He did like 13 or something. I did one. Um, we What else have we worked on? We've done some other like PSA stuff together, a, a, a Funny or Die thing together. We've probably done other, but he's like such a friend. I don't know why he's still speaking to me, to be honest with you. <laughs> I dragged him through the mud since 1974 when I met him, luring him into these crazy projects like Transylvania 6, 5,000. He has me to thank for that. <laughs> I won the draft. No, it's going to be fine. We'll fix the script when we get there. But it was fine. It was the truth is it was fun. I don't shy away from talking about that movie anymore. I had it all wrong for years going, that movie was not so good because it didn't do. Interesting. That's why there'll never be a sequel. Probably it didn't do much box office at all. It was a box office flop. It was a 
huge critical flop. People in the press mostly didn't like it. So, but you can survive that, but you can't survive not making money. And it did not. So I never thought there'd be a sequel, but yeah. That's at this interesting. Point now we've, Are there uh, many movies like that that you look differently at as time goes by? Um, yeah, you know, Meet the Applegates was a movie that didn't make a lot of money when it came out either. Michael Lehman made a movie. Uh, Dabney was in that too with me and Stocker Channing and me. We played uh, these uh, South American bugs that could blend in like a certain chameleon, kind of a beetle, a stick beetle or something can blend into the background of the forest. We were able to blend into the American tapestry, if you will, and look human, but we're really bugs. And so uh, we were coming to America to uh, have a nuclear meltdown to kill everybody in the United States so that we could survive in the South American rainforest because it had kind of an environmental theme, the thing. It's one of the reasons I did it. Michael Lehman is a great guy. And it was a very well-made, artistically well-made movie, but it just didn't grab any big, wide appeal. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't regret doing I regret none of it. Every single thing, I don't want to get too woo-woo, but every single thing that happened to me, Neil, all was necessary for me to be seated in this chair right now with you. And it's sublime. It really is. Everything is great. You know, from my kids to my grandkids to sitting here talking to you and Tristan, it's just, it's all sublime and I would change nothing. And that's, I say that, but I really mean it. It's, it's quite wonderful. Uh, you mentioned taking the role because of the environmental themes of the film. And uh, that's something you've been known for for a long time. Right? You were doing electric car long before it became mainstream. I bought my first electric car in 1970, 7-0. It was wow. a Taylor Dunn electric car. A guy named Dutch in Reseda sold it to me for $950. I was the only person under 65 that ever bought one from him. They were used in the desert communities by elderly people to get around to the market and back. They could just plug it in, then have to bother with a gas station. And it could get you, you know, it had a range of about 12 or 15 miles tops. But that was plenty to get from Cathedral City to whatever, you know, Palm Springs to Desert Hot Springs or wherever they're going to visit their bridge partners. And so I drove it. It had a California license plate. But it was basically a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn. And I drove it for a while. And then I graduated up the transportation ladder to a Peugeot bicycle because it went further and faster. If you ate enough food, you could go 30, 40, 50 miles. And I did that. And uh, I lived in Boulder, Colorado, Colorado for a while. So I didn't need an electric car there. And uh, But then I got them again. I rediscovered them a few years later and started driving them. And I haven't looked back since 1990. It's been only electric around LA. Then for long trips, I had a hybrid for a while, but now I've got a Tesla S and it has a nearly 400 mile range, like 350 reliable miles. So I can drive cross country the way anybody can in a normal car because you're going to stop anyway to use the bathroom or have a bite of lunch or breakfast or dinner. When I stop to eat, I plug it in. And when I finish my meal, it's ready to go again. So no brainer. Was, uh, was this isn't something you've been uh, interested in your whole life, the, uh, the environment? Yeah, and there's a reason for that, Neil, and I'm glad you asked. There's a few bad reasons why I got involved and one very good one. Well, two good ones. The bad one was growing up in smoggy L.A. It was horrible choking smog in the 50s and 60s and for decades thereafter. So I did something to try to get involved and to clean it up. That was the bad thing. You know, the other bad thing was the Cuyahoga River catching fire near Cleveland in 1969, just before the first Earth Day in 1970. 
everybody like me thought it was kind of a bad sign if rivers were catching fire, so much toxic chemical on it, somebody lit a match, it caught fire. Those were the bad things. The good ones were every bit as powerful. My father died a few days before the first Earth Day, and he was a conservative that liked to conserve. We turned off the lights, we turned off the water, we saved string and tinfoil. You know, he was a son of Irish immigrants who lived through the Great Depression. So him passing away, I wanted to do something to honor him. And also, I'd been a Boy Scout, so I got to see nature up close and personal, and I thought it was something worth preserving. So I got involved for some good and bad reasons, and I haven't looked back. I've been involved since 1970, and I would never go back to my old ways. In fact, more and more economical and more practical uh, ways are being afforded me and many others to try, and um, most of work. So when did uh, Bagley's Earth Responsible Products, when did that come about? When did you like decide, like, this is something I would like to do? I had my very own line back in, night in hold on, 2005 called Begley's Best. I bought a formula. I did not own the formula. I leased it from him, if you will. I got the rights to bottle it somewhere. I bottled it with a company, you know, bottling it for me. I stored it in my garage. I sold it every Sunday at the Studio City Farmer's Market. I shipped it around the country. And then I just got too busy as an actor and I didn't have time to ship bottles of liquid around and it was expensive and it could spill. It was, you know, very hard to do. I applaud the people that are doing it well. So I folded up that company for a while. And then I met this guy, Mark, uh, Mark Cunningham. And he said, I've got, I heard about your story shipping out of your garage, Studio City Farmer's Market sitting there under a pop-up. We're going to handle everything for you. You come and help us promote the products. We will show you the EPA designed for the environment, third-party certification that shows it's, it's cleaner, cleaner than your previous products and help us promote them. And, you know, we'll all, you know, do well together. And so I did just that. And it's a great arrangement because I don't have to ship anything or bottle anything. I just get to share this information from you and ask you to try it. No matter what you do, let me be very clear here. Go buy seven generation. Go buy some other clean product, if not mine. But try it. If you want to give us a try, I recommend it because ours clean very, very well. They're 100% certified, third-party certification, non-toxic. So try a green product like Seven Generation ours, and you'll make a difference. Because a lot of people like me are out there protesting. No more houses waste sites. They're putting a houses waste site near my home. The houses waste site is in your home. It's under your sink. Get rid of it. Stop using it. And so uh, get some and try it now. If you want to try ours, just go to Amazon or Chewy or wherever and type in, you know, a Google search, type in Begley Cleaning, it'll come right up. Begley Cleaning are the only two words you need to know. Okay, cool. We use uh, seventh just, generation at, uh, at the school I work at. It's, good it's great stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's I really great. like what they've done as a company for <clears throat> years. And so <clears throat> I support them. <clears throat> Unlike actors who are friends and aren't really in competition, they're a big company. I'm the not even a fly on their shoulder, you know, but they, uh, they do great stuff and I'm supportive of them. And when I've met many of them, they've been very supportive of me, you know, trying to sell my version of non-toxic products. So we're all in this together. Myers, Ecos are all, there's some great stuff being done out there. I just want people to buy something clean and green. If you want to try mine, go for it. That's a good message. Thank you. Uh, Tristan, do you have another question? Do you have any other handy tips for people who maybe want to be more responsible in their lives uh, concerning the environment? Yes. People regularly come up to to me and say, hey, I can't afford a big, you know, nine kilowatt solar array in my roof like you. 
I can't afford to buy a Tesla like you. And I go, neither could I. I could only afford it like two years ago when I bought it. So late in life, you know, geezer kind of a expenditure. But I couldn't afford solar or what have you, any of that stuff for years. I'm only asking you to do it exactly the same way I did it back in 1970. I was a broken, struggling actor. Do what you can. Pick the low-hanging fruit first. Do what you can today. Energy-efficient light bulb. Try those. Energy-efficient thermostat. You know, get one of those put in or put it in yourself. Weather stripping around your doors and windows. Home gardening, home composting. You know, uh, become a vegetarian. Bike riding if weather and fitness permits. Public transportation if it's available near you. There's eight things right there. Super cheap, super cheap, cheap, cheap. And let me tell you something. I guarantee as I sit here, you're going to save money and then you can do more. Then you can maybe afford a little rain barrel to collect some rainwater if you have room for that. You can afford a little solar oven for your backyard to cook some stuff in that. But nobody runs up to the top of Mount Everest. You get to base camp and you get acclimated and you climb as high as you can. Not everybody's going to make it to the top and buy a Tesla S and have nine kilowatts of solar. But do what you can. Do it today. Do something to protect our fragile, beautiful planet. Um, I, I know it's a weird time. Well, hopefully we're coming to the end of uh, the pandemic. But are you working on anything uh, currently? I'm doing Young Sheldon, a wonderful show on CBS with the great kid Ian and Wallace Shawn and I are competing for the affections of uh, Meemaw, played by Andy Potts. It's a well-written show. It's got a lot of heart. I do that regularly. I, in the past, have done some Better Call Saul. There's a new season coming that I can't wait to see. I'm, I'm looking fan. forward to that. Yeah, I'm very fan. excited by that. I did Mr. Mayor with Ted Danson. I'm doing Queer as Folk right now in New Orleans. I'm busy, busy, busy but happy to take this time and talk to you. I'm so grateful I was able to do so, Neil. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming oh, on yeah. today. Thank you all. Yeah. Love to do it again Thank sometime. Thank you so much. Yeah. Anytime you say, pal. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Join us next week when Ed Bagley Jr. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, have a good night or a good day. You yeah. too. Thank yeah. you all. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you everyone for watching. Good night, everyone. Good night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was easy. You guys are good to talk to. Yeah, well.